that's going to be the first thing, is when you um, comment, when you share some thoughts, please, if you can share your name as well. Um, in our tradition, our names are echo a lot of the essence of who we are. So if we could have that also in the room, especially since the only person who right now can see the faces of everyone here is myself. So um, I think actually the place where I want to start, which I didn't plan on starting because of that is, um, you know, I often tell my students that um, I don't live in a reality in which the question is whether there are miracles or not. I live in a world where there are miracles. Our choice in life is whether to acknowledge the miracles or not, but not whether they exist. So um, where I'd like to start this morning actually is um, to say, to take a moment, think about your life, think about your life journey, think about where you've come from, think about where you've been, and um, the way I'm offering to think about this is, think about how many miracles the master of the world had to create in order for you to be here right now. Think about how many miracles did the master of the world have to create in order for you to be here right now. Now, I know about how many miracles he had to create in my life, and I'm sure that they're multiple in the lives of every person here. So if you can take a moment and turn around. There's one seat over there, I say. Someone's coming here, but there's one seat here, there's one seat there. So um, take a moment and look around the room so you can have a sense of, I'm mean, seriously, like wherever you're sitting, right? Take a look around the room. Make eye contact with at least one person that you don't know. And if there's other people that you do know as well, to acknowledge all of those miracles. And um, so that's why I want to start with Baruch HaTov V'Hamitiv for our learning this week. Yeah, I know. 
to learn together in the past, know that normally a shiur begins with an igun. It's a way of bringing all of us together. It's a way also of being able to hear all of our voices because um, by definition there will be voices that we will hear and there will be some people that in this context we won't hear. That's also one of the gifts of the Beit Midrash, is that in the context of the Beit Midrash, we actually get to hear everyone's voice. Um, but in the context of a shiur that looks like this, to a certain extent, we won't get to hear everyone's voice, but God willing, we will hear some of your voices, because I do not plan on... Uh, yes, you got it. <laughs> um, so every shiur begins with a nigun, and then if from there we move to an opening prayer before we start doing what we would call text learning. Um, and the reason for the opening prayer is actually because of this teaching of Rabbi Nechunyad ben Akana. So I am going to hand this out for a moment so we can learn it for a bit. And then we'll have our opening prayer. And then we'll enter into the Hasidic sources. So, um, in the meantime, I want to make a few opening comments for... Um, for the learning for the next three days. Number one is, despite my American accent, I grew up in Israel. Um, I was born here in the States. Um, my parents made Aliyah when I was eight, um, but uh, decided to make Aliyah when I was two. So I grew up bilingual, knowing that we were always on our way to, uh, to Israel. Um, so it was like split personality from day one. And um, so part of what that means is that in some way, English is not my first language. Um, and in the other way, it means that I'm continuously translating between the two languages. So whatever I'm talking, I'm translating to the other language. Um, what this means in this context is twofold. One is, um, sometimes I'll say, what does that mean? If there's a blank look, that means I need a, I need a dictionary <laughs> definition. <laughs> and if there's like, what does that mean? Right, that means I want to hear more. Okay? It also means that I make up words in English because I have a sense of what they sound like or they're words that I know how to read them but have no idea how you, how you articulate them. Um, so when that happens, enjoy the laugh. Don't feel inhibited. Laugh. Right? And then let me know. And um, we don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Okay, great, thank you. I know that there was a problem with the Xerox machine uh, over the weekend, as they call it. Um, so that's our one eye makeup words. Enjoy them and then just let me know. And if you are um, enticed to actually use one of those sophisticated words, enjoy it and the, just know that you'll have to be able to not only use it, but explain it. <laughs> Um, the other thing is that I've learned um, since being in Los Angeles now for eight years, um, and that is uh, two things. One is I have learned to talk about Hasidim, and the other side of the scale are not, right? They're not that. They are Hasidically challenged. So I no longer talk about Hasidim and Mitnagdim, right? Um, but I talk about Hasidim and Hasidically challenged. Um, and the other is that um, I know that there are some people that are gender sensitive and what that means is that when I talk about the master of the world, the truth of the matter is I'll say the master of the world, I'll say God, I'll say Ribbon Shalom, I'll say creator. Um, sometimes we're on our first name basis and I call him George <laughs> or the Shekhinah, I call her Georgina. So, um, but what I want to say is whatever word you feel comfortable with, is the word that you should use. And when I use one of those words that are comfortable for me, um, and they're not comfortable for you, then don't allow that to be a buzzword that throws you off. Insert the word that's comfortable for you. Um, and more often than not, I'll say he. Um, and I don't want to align a gender with the, with the master of the world, the divine. Um, but you know in Hebrew the word he means what in English? She. So if I say he and you think bilingual, <laughs> I think that's going to get me into Gun Eden, I have to tell you. <laughs> I think I'm going to get up there, and they're going to say, who are you? And I'll say, remember the he, she, the, right? And I'll say, yeah, and? And then I'll say, the gematria of Tov is 17, and the gematria, the numeric value of the word Tov is 17, and the numeric value of the word Oi is also 17. <laughs> so that, those two things are going to get me there. Okay, so on, this, on those two notes, please, um, as I said, um, I hope we understand this as an ongoing partnership. Um, for those of you who don't have a text yet, I'm going to read it all. You, and this is an indication of what the sources will be throughout the three mornings, and that is everything will be in Hebrew, in English. Um, and if, again, if there's a word that I think is actually English, but it's really Hebrew, <laughs> you'll let me know, okay? Um, and if you don't hear back there, you'll let me know. Um, and if there are other needs that I fall short of and I can come through with, then please, there's a seat for you, young lady. Um, then please uh, let me know. So, Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana hayamit palel mechnisato levet hamidrash uvizyato tfila ktara. Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana, he had this tradition, hayamit palel, right? So, I'm going to allude to, at this moment, um, had a tradition, or habitually, was regular, right? He regularly, hayamit palel, bechnisato levet midrash uviyitziyato tfila ktara. He would pray a short prayer when entering and exiting the bet midrash. Amrulo, they said to him, ma makom litfila zo? What is the place for this prayer? אמר להם, he says to them, בכניסתי אני מתפלל שלא יערה תקלה על ידי. When I enter, I pray that there should not be any mishap on my behalf, because of me. 
וביציאתי, and when I exit, אני נותן הודעה על חלקי. And when I exit, I give thanks for my share, for my lot. And what you have on the bottom part of the page is the Gemara as it unfolds, and you'll see that there's a Breitah, um, another Tanaitic source that expands his Tefillah some in terms of the content of the Tefillah. So if you are seeing this Mishnah for the first time, what are the questions that you have? Okay? I need a name and questions as you raise your hand. Yes, please. Hebrew name if possible. Tipoa. Okay, great. Okay, because of the way he... Well, where is he entering and exiting? Where he learns, okay? So there are a couple of questions. What are the mishaps that he thinks that could happen that he needs to pray when entering, mm-hmm. right? And then I'd ask, based on your question also, well, what is filah? How does filah influence his learning? Like, why is filah... You know, I would think maybe the way to prepare for learning would be, go over the, th- you'd give me dot, go over the 13 ways of Rabbi Ishmael, how you learn. Call the Homer, right? Call him Prat. I mean, we have different paradigms to how to learn. Maybe that should be how you prepare for learning, right? So I would say one is, what kinds of mishaps does he think? The other is, what does prayer have to do with his learning? Other questions? Yes. Tipoah. Okay, how many tipolas in the room? <laughs> what is the prayer that he's praying? We want to know what the prayer that he's praying is. Mm-hmm. Other questions? Linguistic questions? What is, okay, so you want to know about his power, right? And the truth of the matter is, the interesting thing is that if you go back to the Gemara here, you'll see that he was what I would call a professional davener. Right? Um, No, no. You'll see in the Gemara, as I say, in your spare time, right? If you go to the Gemara here, you'll see two stories. One of Rabban Gamliel, whose son was sick, and one of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, when their sons were sick. Right? And they send someone... To Rabbi, to Rabbi Hanan ben Dosa to pray on their behalf, right? So you can see there, right, you have two people that are, I mean, what can we say? Nasi, Rabban Gamliel, right? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, that when their sons are sick, right, they don't pray for their sons' refuah, for their sons' healing, but rather they send someone to ask Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa to pray. Now I'm bringing this up also because I have an agenda here. When you see the Rabbi Nachman story, right, you'll see that Rabbi Nachman alludes to that, uh, those incidences in the Gemara. And Rabbi Hanina says there, If the words flow from me, then I know that everything is going to be okay. Right? When you look at the Gemara, you'll see Rabban Gamir Shigir Shnei Talmidim. He sends. So this Shagul, this regular or this flowing element, is very much um, the core of the kind of tefillah that we're going to be talking about, or one paradigm of tefillah that we're going to be talking about. Okay? Other questions? Yeah. Name? Mm-hmm. Excuse me? 
I'm sorry. No, it's great. Hmm? No, it's, it's, uh, I have this. This is one of my known Freudians live. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly, 100%. Yeah, you're good, yeah. Hiya. Hiya. And my question is, why is this thing not home? Okay, well, if you, were, if, you were, if you were putting this Mishnah together, what would have you, or why do you think the Makom is there? Okay, or Lamat Filazo, what is this prayer, right? But clearly the word Makom is crucial here, right? Now, partially because we can't not, when you hear the word makum, I mean, one of the gifts of learning is, is the depth of a, of, a, of a tradition, right? So you can't use the word makum without hearing Hashem's name, right? Hamakom yanachem, ad me'avesim in good health, right? But we can't not hear God's presence, right? Now, this tefillah is happening. Where is it happening? Where is it happening? Hmm? Look at the words. Where is it happening? Okay, not clear. It's not clear where exactly this is happening. Does he say it before he walks in? And then? Does that, is that as he enters? Or does he walk through the door and then say the prayer? The same thing. Does And when he walks out, does he stand for a moment and then say the tefillah? Or does he walk out, see the street, and then say the tefillah? Right? And then we know, for example, the Gemara will tell us um, that Laulami adam bet a person should always enter both entrances before starting to pray. So are they saying, one second, what is their question? Are they, are they involved with the fact that you're not davening halakhically correct? Because you need to be, maybe if he's on the inside or the outside, maybe you actually need to be sitting, you need to be positioned. Like, what does tefillah look like? What constitutes tefillah? What's respectful to tefillah? Is it a question of, mama what is the place of tefillah? Because Bet Midrash is where you learn, not where you daven, right? And if, again, for example, if you look at Masachar Brachot, I think, I'd say from Zayin to Yud Aleph, Yud Bet, those five pages, those for the Pim, in some way, I think the, the strand you can see through them is actually a strand of constituting the place of Bet Knesset versus Bet Midrash. Right? And in one you pray, and in one you learn. Right? And then I'm coming back to start echoing a piece of your question, Tipoa, as I heard it, right? Not as you asked it. Your, the first question that I heard, right, is what is the relationship between praying and Bet Midrash when Bet Midrash is where you learn and Bet Knesset is where you pray? And how can tefillah be a preparation for learning? And then I'll come to your question in terms of, I'll come back to your question in terms of, well, what is the power? They're both, what they both have in common is words, okay? On one level. Because tefillah, I think, is not only words. And I have to say that learning, I think, is not only words. But the communicative element and the element of tefillah and limud and learning and daving that we share is in the realm of words. So are the words that bridge between Bet Knesset and Bet Midrash? Are words the bridge between the outside world and the inside world? Right? 
are words, do words have a liminal element to them, which is unique in ways that other parts of our lives don't share. So, um, and in the same way, I'd say, um, in, in, in the mystical tradition, words are perceived to be the most, and we'll come back to this later in the morning, I'm, I'm going to throw it out now and we'll come back to it. Words are considered to be the most physical of the spiritual realm and most spiritual of the physical realm. Okay? So we hear them with our physical ears, right? So therefore, in some way, they're connected to the physical realm. We can feel our vapor of breath as we speak, so there's a physical component to our words as we utter them versus as we think them, right? And on the other hand, we don't see them, right? Yes power, no power, what kind of venue are they? What kind of engine are they? What kind of powerhouse are they? How are they not limited to the physical realm? These are all the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking and thinking about as we enter into learning about tefillah. Okay. Other questions? Yes. Batya. What I picked up was a short prayer. What does that mean? Is that a particular prayer? Or is it a prayer that just sets a Great. What is a short prayer? Because we also know that we have a halakha category of a short prayer, havinenu, like when you can't daven all of Shmonayas, well, you say the first three, the last three, and then there's an abridged version of the middle brachot, or the middle blessings, and that's considered filak tzara. So is this a way, for example, I'm, I say to myself, based on your question, is the use of the phrase filak tzara telling us that actually this was a practice that was institutionalized? Right? that it started out as a very personal endeavor. It started out that Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana, when he would walk in and out of the Beit Midrash, this was his experience. His experience was a sense of, I want to offer one offering, and we could spend like another hour and a half thinking like, why this tefillah entering and exiting. But for now, what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna, one reading is to say that when he walks in, he's carrying the vulnerability of the halachic endeavor. Right? If you're a paskening halacha, right, you know, that can save someone's life or, God forbid, in some way, take someone's life. Right? There's a reason why we have a da'at yachid in the Gemara, for example, because sometimes some rav is going to have to use a da'at yachid, a singular opinion, to paskin for someone 500 years later or 1,000 years later or 2,000 years later because they're going to need a source to anchor to really save someone's life. Right? A da'at yachid, a singular opinion, is not where we halachically would go immediately. It's like that's the first place you look. But sometimes in some situations, that's where we're going to have to go. So I would say, on the one hand, he's completely vulnerable to the Hadachic endeavor. He's also very vulnerable to the dynamic of the Bet Midrash. It can be brutal. It can be hard. It can be ugly. Right? You can find yourself screaming and yelling at someone and taking things like very personally. Okay, there are enough smiles around the room that actually know that, right, have experienced this. You know, and I remember banging on the table in front of my chavu, like, screaming, like, no, what are you talking about? Like, he was like, ooh, <laughs> okay. So, these things happen. And the rabbis are human beings. 
Right? If you look at the bright side, you know, they're going to laugh at me. If I'm going to make a mistake, you know, someone trips. As mature as you are, someone trips, you find yourself smiling. Right? You'll hold yourself back. Right? You won't laugh. Like kids, they'll laugh out loud. And as adults, sometimes they'll be like, like you'll feel your lips moving and you'll say, oh, you're like, you can't laugh. <laughs> like, it's not funny. This person just tripped. It's not funny. But our body somehow has that way. So, um, so that's why he's aware of the vulnerability, whether the dynamic in the Bet Midrash, whether the dynamic of the endeavor of the Bet Midrash. And on the flip side, Great. Okay, and I want to take your comment. Name? Leah. Leah. I want to take your comment, Leah, and work on both sides. Right? On the one hand, don't enter into the Bemirash with this haughtiness, with this gava, thinking like, oh, look at you, right? Because the truth of the matter is we can all trip. We can all be wrong. We can all smile when someone else blows it. With those, that's all true. On the other hand, when you walk out into the street and you see the people in the street, I'd say also don't hold to, on to that gava. Like, why, why did you merit... Right, to learn, well, they are living their lives as merchants, for example. Right? Again, is it because you are uniquely some kind of individual or because this is chalki, this is what the lot that I was given, right? And actually when he walks out and he sees these people, they're a memory, again, of actually who he is and how he is no different than, than anyone else. Okay, so these are possibilities of how to think about a tefillah when entering, when exiting. Is this a tefillah that was a known tefillah, or at least not in the beginning, but then the use of the phrase tefillah k'tara was this was in some way institutionalized. The fact that we use the tefillah as it appears in the Baita, in the Gemara, afterwards, um, when we do a siyum of learning, tells us that in some way it has been, it has found its way into our um, quote-unquote codified Tefillah in some or or limud, right? What what closes the masechet? What closes that b'yitziato? I want to say min hamasechet, right? It would be tziato min hamasechet. As we exit a masechet, we find ourselves saying this tefillah. So it has found its way into our um, into our ongoing um, observance. So these are some of the questions that will continuously for me define what the dynamic of Bet Midrash is. And in some way, what I'd like us to look at these three mornings is whether we're sitting here in this room or in a few minutes we'll head to the Bet Midrash, right, for some Chavruta learning. Um, either or, right, to see this context as Bet Midrash. And therefore it renders, and therefore it renders a tefillah as we enter the Bet Midrash and a tefillah as we exit the Bet Midrash. So every shiur that I... That I um, I teach, we start with the nigun, and then someone offers uh, opening prayer, and someone at the end of the learning will offer a closing prayer. So I, at this moment, want to open up the moment for someone to offer an opening prayer for our learning for today.
Amen. 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 Okay. Now, what are we going to do these three mornings? <laughs> As you can see, I've divided up our three mornings, three different times, schools of thought, relationships to tefillah. There's not going to be any, what there isn't going to be is, as my uncle said this morning, like the cereal box says everything that the cereal is not, but what is it? <laughs> Ironically, he said, it says it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. The only positive said thing that he said is, it is kosher. <laughs> so, um, we're going to spend this morning looking at, at the early Hasidic Rebbe's. And there will be handouts in a moment, don't worry. Um, the the Maggot of Mezrich, teachings of the Baal Shem Tov in the name of the Maggot of Mezrich, or I should say, teaching the Maggot of Mezrich in the name of the Baal Shem Tov would be more appropriate. Um, the Ora Meir, Reb Zevov of Jitomir, Reb Shneur Zalman, Reb Nachman, and you'll see, I couldn't resist. There is a piece of Rav Soloveitchik there, too. <laughs> and uh, whenever I find myself either putting the Rambam with the Hasidic sources or Rav Soloveitchik with the Hasidic sources, there's a smile that comes to my lips. Um, but I think that there's a, way of, there's a way of doing it and a way of actually uh, that it honors, it honors both. And, um, and we will use this image of the words being a vehicle, a container, right? In the Hasidic tradition, so we're not, what we're not going to talk about is we're not talking about um, the content of specific tefillot. Okay? We'll be talking about the experience of tefillah. Now, I have to say on some level, Hasidic rabbis weren't big on be'orei tefillah. That's what we learned in sixth grade, fifth and sixth grade, right? Be'orei tefillah. We sat in class with the Sidur, and we were taught the meaning of the words of the tefillah. So the Hasidic Rebbe's weren't... Okay, a lot of good memories here. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah, because the girls, when we, we were, the guys were doing Gemara, we did Mishnah and Be'orei Tefillah. But yes, but true. I still remember. You know, I still remember the 13 principles of the Rambam. You give me the Karim of the Rambam and Yigdal. And I remember, like, my notebook had, like, a light blue column and a dark blue column and the comparison between the two. So... Um, God bless her, wherever she is. And Rehovot, happy, I still remember. Um, so, one of the things that always saved the Hasidic world from being marginalized is the fact that they, it, the adherence to halacha. And I want to say, in that, in that realm, it wasn't a question. Like I always say, that when people ask what the difference between your, your Rav and your Rebbe was, and classic Hasidim, traditional Hasidim, you had your Rav, who paskin for you on certain issues, and you had your Rebbe. So I'd say your, your Rav, you would ask, until what time can I daven? And your Rebbe, you would ask, when I'm davening, what should I be contemplating? Right? So Hasidim had, traditional Hasidim had a Rav and had a Rebbe. And for many years, I had a Rav and I had a Rebbe. And my Rav loved it when I'd actually ask him questions about how to deal with Reb Shlomo. Like, I had like halacha questions, like how to deal with these certain situations. So he loved the fact that I would come for him for advice to how to, you know, halakhali deal with, given, with given situations. Rav and Rebbe. So the question was never about the tefillah in terms of the sidur. The question was never a tefillah in terms of the nusach, other than the fact that chasidim daven nusach ha'ari, um, sfar nusach ha'ari, 
Um, but it wasn't about Shacharit Mincha and Arvit. It may be, I mean, the, one of the core issues was about timing and about the shift of Kavana, intention, and Vikut, cleaving to God as Tfilah being a vehicle to cleaving to God. And I would say that that is one of the core issues that we're going to be looking at throughout. In other words, Tefillah is not only necessarily, is not only fulfilling an obligation. We have an obligation to daven twice or thrice a day, depending on how you hold um, and who you are. But also, um, what, is, what is happening in Tefillah? What is Tefillah meant to be? Tefillah as a vehicle for um, connecting, cleaving, to God. Tefillah, as we'll see with the Nitivot Shalom on Wednesday, as a means of expression of yearning to intimacy with God. Tomorrow, when we look at the Me'ashilach, the Ishbut Rebbe, we'll see Tefillah as a venue of God revealing God's self, which will echo in a very different way, Rav Salavechik, that you'll see later today, where he talks about Nivuah coming from God to us and Tefillah coming from us to God. And now you can also see this image of the ladder of the ascending and descending angels, why I had to bring Rav Soloveitchik here as well. Um, and I'm sure he's fine with it. Um, so the question was never about the words of the tefillah, the structure of tefillah. There was no chidush, no um, renovation or renewal or restructuring of the format of tefillah. The question really was, as I said, not when do I daven, but how do I daven? What am I thinking about when I'm davening? What is davening about? So the truth of the matter is, um, saying the words for the Hasidic Rebbe's would be just the beginning of the story. Right? So you fulfilled your halachic obligation, but did you daven? Right? That would be the question. Okay? Um, so I want to share with you two short stories, and then we're going to go into Haruta for a while, and then we're going to come back. Okay? That's the deal. So the two stories are the following. One is, um, and they're both biographical. Um, one is, I was talking to a student of mine. This is a, a bunch of years ago. And um, I don't remember the content of the conversation. I don't remember what we were talking about. But all of a sudden, I said to him, I said, are you davening? Right? Because he was someone who had had a very, um, I'd say, um, colorful life and many different chapter t chapters to his life. Um, and when I was having this conversation with him, it was clear to me that morning minion he hadn't seen in probably half a decade. <laughs> right? So I knew, I knew that in terms of the technicality of his shacharit mincha narvit, I knew that that wasn't happening, right? But I said to him, I said, are you davening? And his answer to me was, I don't have tefillin. I said, that's not what I asked. I asked, are you davening? Right? Now, his response was, he went back immediately <coughs> to his yeshiva life, right? And when the question is asked, do you daven? Well, daven is shacharit minchan arvit. Davening is, for a man, definitely tefillin. So when I asked him, Right, are you davening? And he said, but I don't have tefillin. I said, that's not what I asked. I said, are you davening? 
right? I have to say in parentheses, we from my house went to the store and bought tefillin because if he thought that that was why he's not davening, that wasn't going to be the reason, right? So that's one. But my question to him was saying that we're talking about two different things. Right? When talking about, when asking him, are you davening, we're talking about two different things. The other is... Um, Well, I want to say that there's a way in which davening and communicating with the master of the world isn't only bound to the sidu, and the sidu is the beginning of it. Right? That's, the, that's where we start. That's not where we end up. You know, growing up, I used to think that the sidu, in many ways, was my, my um, spiritual mirror. Right? And I thought, like, I had to have kavanah from the first word to the last word. And if I didn't have, if I wasn't, my mind wasn't aligned with the words from the beginning to the end, I failed which meant that I started my, my life every day for a lot of years spiritually failing. But could you have envisioned him dominating? Did you know the answer? Or did you, could you have envisioned No, 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 no. I, no, I actually didn't know what he was going to say. And I, to be honest, I was actually quite surprised. Right? Because in my mind, there's multiple ways to daven. And speaking to the master of the world in any form and shape would have been a way of davening. And I actually thought, that based on where he is in his life, he would have said yes. Right? But he, when he heard the word davening, for him, there's only one way to daven, and that's sidul. And then if you don't have sidul, right? And when people walk into shul and don't know what to do with a sidul, right? How do we teach them to daven? Right? And, and, and alongside that learn sidul, but you can walk into shul or you can sit in God's presence and daven even if you can't connect to specifically the given words. Yeah, Shmuel. I just, I just want to push you a little bit into what you said and, and see if you want to open that up or if you can't open that up. And that's, you, said, you, you, just, you just said in passing right. that, 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 uh, uh, that the sidur is the beginning of tefillah. Well, if you see Tefillah in that way, if you know that this guy is not engaging the Sidur, right. then according to that paradigm, then there's nothing to talk about. Because he hasn't done the first step. If you say that Sidur is the first step, right. the beginning, and you know somebody is not engaging the beginning, then there's nothing after. So what are you asking about? Okay, so the image that comes to my mind uh, to answer your question is swimming, right? And that is sometimes what you, the way to teach someone to swim is get them in the water. Get them to experience the water. Get them to move in the water. Get them to feel their weightlessness in the water. And then we teach them the actual movements of what swimming, what constitutes swimming, right? So I'd say the same thing would be with davening. If we, if we need to wait until someone is fluent in, in sidul, for them to experience that they're davening, right? I think that as teachers, as parents, as friends, we are withholding from them an experience of intimacy with God that they shouldn't be, shouldn't be well, withheld. Okay, but then I want to push you about your language because it just came out of you and maybe you want to rethink that. That you don't really see Sidur as the beginning of Tzipipa. Um, no, I'm going to hold on to it, but I'm going to ask you to hear it in multiple ways. Right? That's what I'm going I'm to, I'm offering the challenge back to you. And when I say that sentence, I want you to hear it on multiple levels what I'm, what I'm saying. Okay? Um, and? 
Hmm? Oh, the second story. The second story, thank you. That was like a little bit more embarrassing, maybe or not. I don't know. So, but, and it's also connected to this shagul, this fluidity in some way. Um, this happened, oh my God, probably about 20 years ago. My, um, I was at Hebrew University in kindergarten. No. Uh, <laughs> I was doing my undergrad work at Hebrew U. And um, I don't remember the details of the day. Um, but the master of the world and I were not having a good day together. <laughs> okay, it was like, ooh, not pretty. Now, I really don't remember what happened. But, you know, at Hebrew U, for me, one of the, one of the godsends of Hebrew U was that Mincha happened between 4 and 4.30, which meant that if you got lost, if you kind of lost your sense of self somewhere between getting to class at 8.30 in the morning and 4 o'clock, you could reclaim yourself at Mincha. And then by the time, and then you could hold on to your identity until class was over at, from 4.30 to 6, and you'd be fine. So Mincha, in many ways, was, was one, of, one of the things that it offered me was like a way of like, whew, just breathing, coming back to myself, saying, oh, hi, nice to meet you again. Well, there you are. That's who you are. Okay, we're good. So, um, and I love that in the midst of all of my academic obnoxiousness, I could take 20 minutes to be humble again. So that also worked. So that day, I don't remember what was happening, but the master of the world and I were not really on talking terms. And I, I'm, I'm not a davening mincha. Like, I have nothing to say. I'm not davening mincha. And um, I grew up davening shacharit mincha every day. So I'm like, but I'm not davening mincha. And it's 4.10 and it's 4.15, and I'm consciously not davening mincha. And... Um, so I need you to know, the end of the story is the class begins at 4.30, and I promise you that I was at class on time. But it's about 4.20, and I'm, at, I'm, I'm sitting in my classroom, and I'm saying, you can't not dab in mincha. Like, the fact that you're not talking to God right now is irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a chiyot to dab in mincha. <laughs> like, you don't need to be talking to God to dab in mincha. <laughs> That's the bottom line of it, right? So I run to shul, I run to the Knesset, I run up the stairs, um, I daven mincha, um, and remember, I was in class on time, so as I'm running down the stairs, um, someone was standing there, um, and he says to me, you're done? I said, what? I was like, when blank, he says, that's it? I said, what? Because I, I didn't know what he, want, what he was asking me, and he says, so, so fast, you're done? Whoa. Right? Now, I got to tell you, like, this is my, the other side of my personality isn't as nice as you may think, still think I am. <laughs> and that is, I look at him and says, how much do you get? He goes, what? I go, yeah, how much do you get? He says, excuse me? I go, yeah, as God's secretary, how much do you get a month? <laughs> and off I go to class. Okay. Now, I do want to say two things. Number one is that after class, I went back to look for him to apologize. Right? And I said, you know, I grew up in a, in a home that Kvod Rav was an important thing. And no matter what, no matter what, I was disrespectful and I want to apologize. And he said, I'm happy you came back because I want to apologize because the truth of the matter is, it was none of my business. And I said to him, what you don't know is that I was davening Mincha since 4 o'clock. <laughs> right? I said the words in the Bet Knesset in three minutes. And the truth of the matter is, that may be the highest mincha I've ever davened in my life. Right? When, I, when those words came out of my mouth, speed limit, 
right? That, uh, it may be that I will never, I, I can spend 20 hours davening mincha with every kind of mystical connotation to every word, and that mincha will never come close to that three-minute mincha. I saw, what I said to him was like, I said, but you, what you didn't know is that I started davening mincha at 4 o'clock. So I actually was davening from 4 to 4.25. Right? Even though what you saw was 422 <laughs> to 425. Okay? So these are, both of these stories are here to help us enter into when thinking about tefillah in the, in the context of the Hasidic Rebbe's, what kind, what is the context in which we're talking about? Okay? So it's not going to be Madabat tefillah. It's not going to be the progression from Berchot HaShachar to it's not necessarily going to be that, although in the mystical traditions, in the Kabbalah for sure, we would do that work as well. Okay, but taking a step back and asking ourselves, what are the different venues, the spiritual venues that the tefillah will be offering us? What are the different ways of looking at tefillah? What are the different ways of entering, 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 enter into? Entering into, who that gendering business? Enter, okay, entering into tefillah. Okay, so when the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, which he did not write himself, in the two-volume Sefer Baal Shem Tov, which is a compilation of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov on the parashiot. So God bless this amazing, amazing human being that I can never remember his name. But this is one of the last books that came out, um, actually, before the Shoah. And he went through 216 different Hasidic, early Hasidic books. And wherever, then this is, okay, this is before computers, CD-ROMs, <laughs> engine searches, right? He combed through 216 Hasidic, early Hasidic books and combed out all the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov and organized them according to the Parshiot. The teaching of the Baal Shem Tov and Tfilah will appear in Parshat Noach. And that section is called Amud Tfilah. So if you look at it's Sefer Bar Shem Tov. There are two volumes to it. And every parasha has maybe four or five pages. When it comes to Noah, they're like two, three pages, and then they're like 60 pages. But those 60 pages are called Amud HaTfilah. And the reason for that is that the Bar Shem Tov, when he explains, that, when he looks at the pasuk, Bo El HaTeva, enter into the ark, we know that in Hebrew, the word Teva also means word. It also means musical bar. Right? So he doesn't talk about that, but it's something to hold on to that the word teva can mean word, it can also mean a musical bar. So when the pasuk says, bo'el ha-teva, for the Baal Shem Tov, it's enter into the word. And then he'll use the dimensions of the teva to talk about the different dimensions of the words. So, filah is something that we enter into versus utter with our mouths. Right? It's a world that we enter into. Okay, questions before we start doing some bit midrash time. Thoughts? Yes, please. Your story, just to clarify, when you rushed to Davin, was it A, out of a compulsivity that he knew that you were doing intellectual hammer, or was it because you actually wanted to talk to God again and you didn't say you wanted to reconnect? No, I wasn't talking to God. <laughs> and it wasn't compulsivity, it's about chiyuv. Right? And actually, as you know, when people ask me to, to, to find myself, it's really impossible. I think by now you figured out that probably the best way to define me is 
the complexity of the colors of my skirt and how they come together, right? But I promise a modern Hasidic. Now that doesn't exist, right? You know, the Hasidic world, I don't think, the, the normative Hasidic world in uh, Borough Park, Crown Heights, you know, they look at me and they're not exactly saying, oh yes, you're, you're the lost duckling, you know? <laughs> you're the ugly duckling and how'd that happen, right? But in terms of the world I live in, I live in my spiritual world is the Hasidic world. And my observance is a halachic observance, right? So, um, therefore, I understand that I have a halachic obligation to daven twice a day, right? As a woman, I have a halachic obligation. That's how I understand it. Some people understand the halachic obligation for tefillah women differently, right? But the way I learned is I have, a, I have a halachic obligation to daven twice a day. And being a true chassid is being able to make that distinction. Right? I have a halachic obligation to daven. And I can say, so many people would say, well, that's where it begins and ends. Right? You davened. There's no question. And I would say there are two different things going on. One is my chiyuv to daven, and that happened. In terms of encountering God, it was an encountering, I want to say it was a presence of absence. You know, like kids know how to show up and not be there. <laughs> right? So I would say that that daven that day was fulfilling my chiyuv to daven, and, observe, and maintaining my halachic observance, that for me would be actually being, being a chassid, and the other would be saying, it was presence of absence. I came, I, da- I was there, but I'm davening, but we're not talking. <laughs> right? And people do that sometimes. They'll talk to you, but they, you know, they'll say to you, kids will just say, I'm not, talk- I'm not talking to you, right? I'm talking to you, but I'm not talking to you. So that's what it was. Thank you for the question. Yes? Right. Oh, for sure. Listen, the truth of the matter is to step back for a split second. I think that's a bigger question not only about tefillah. I think it's a question about mitzvot. Okay, so I'd expand that comment to what happens in the realm of mitzvot and how do we actually create a, just a healthy relationship and a healthy engagement with mitzvot. Right, so tefillah is one of them, but because especially those mitzvot that repeat themselves multiple times during the day, right, are prone in some way, prone in some way in that direction. But I'd say in the totality of how we look at the realm of mitzvah and mitzvot, it can, the danger is there as well. Okay, thank you. Okay, guys, so it's 10:27, <laughs> um, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to take the next 40 minutes for chavruta learning. And um, there's a Beth Midrash on the other side of this wall, which would be a good place for this to happen. Now, what I'm going to do is, um, because there's a, a little bit of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A technical challenge here. Okay, this is the following. I need you to prove me wrong. Okay? Don't get too comfortable. You can sit, but don't get too comfortable, because we're going to get up in a minute. <laughs> okay? Um, so... The, the paradigm that I often work with is the more educated a group, the harder it is to hand out paper. <laughs> right? Because when they're not, they just see a number one and they understand that after number one comes number two. And after that comes number three. But I have found in my life that the more educated, the harder that, that progression actually is. 
So um, now these were supposed to be completed. I don't want to say anything bad about anyone, and I know I'm on being taped right now. So as, as uh, my Rebbe would say, I don't want to say anything bad, but so I'm not. <laughs> but what I'm going to do is to make it a little bit easier. I'm actually going to take this pile with me to the other room, and I'm going to put them down on a table, one through seven, <laughs> okay? And you're going to walk in a line, and you're going to take one through seven. I'm also going to take one exemplar of each one to the office to make more copies, okay? That's also going to happen. And we're going to come back at 10.30, and we're going to come back at 11.15 for 45 minutes, okay? You're not going to get through all the sources. Don't even think it. So if you want to start on page four or five, or, or you want to start on seven and work your way backwards, no, no, I want you to be thinking about some of the paradigms that we have been talking about and contemplating in this morning as we started. Okay, questions? Um, if you uh, turn to the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, behind you is a wall, right, and ask, right? <laughs> Okay, so I hope that you had some time to look at some of the sources, some of the teachings to get, and different ones have different flavors um, and different um, points of view that they want to highlight. I do want to apologize. I have a very vivid memory of translating the first two sources on the first page, right, from Savaat Rivash, and somehow when I cut and paste the sources and put the sheets together, Somewhere they disappeared. So I want to, uh, on the first page, so I want to profusely apologize about that, but I actually will go into them uh, right now. And I will highlight different voices throughout. So there is not one text, truth be told, that we will read pro almost in its totality. That's number one. So I don't want you to get um, frustrated. Well, we didn't finish this or we didn't look at. And many times I think about um, source sheets or packets of sources in two ways. One is, God willing, you sit at a Shabbos table and there's so much amazing food on the table. And like you know that you're actually not going to be able to actually eat from everything necessarily. Sometimes you can taste a little bit of something. But at times it will happen that there will be an amazing dish at the table that you actually will not have taken pleasure of even tasting. So I want you to look at the sources in that way as well, in all of these sources. Some will look at, some will have a nice portion of, some will have a tasting of, and some will smile as we pass it on. <laughs> okay? That's the first image. And the other image is a wonderful story of a chassid that came to Rav Shneur Zalman of Ladi, um, the Balatanya, and said, and met with him and then said, Rebbe, you know, it cost me... I can't tell you how much it cost me, but, but I've spent, you know, 10 years of my savings to come in to see you. Bless me that I'll see you again. And the Rebbe blessed him, and he walks out, and two minutes later he comes back because he forgot his umbrella, you know, or his <laughs> handkerchief it was, right? So there's a way in which, like, leaving undone business means that there's going to be a reason to come back and to do some more learning. So I do this actually out of being selfish for wanting to find more excuses for us to continue to learn together. With that, I do want to spend some time on the first page to look at those few sources from uh, the Baal Shem Tov. And as you can see in the, my handwriting, uh, these sources are taken from Tzava'at HaRivash, which literally translates as the um, will of Rivash, is the abbreviation of Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem. 
If you can always know when a person's a chassid or when he's chassidically challenged, whether he thinks Rivash is Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem or Rabbi Yaakov Ben Sheshet. Right? So whether it's a halachic source <laughs> or it's a Hasidic source, like you can see a person's expression and that's how you know. In Los Angeles now, the challenge is, like, to be honest, is since I've been in L.A. now, um, I can't wear, I used to have like amazing white outfits for Shabbat. And living in the Pico-Robertson area, I don't wear them anymore because it's close to the Kabbalah Center. So if you wear white, some people smile at you and some people frown at you. And I feel that if they're smiling at me, they're smiling at me for the wrong reason. And if they're frowning at me, they're frowning at me for the wrong reason. <laughs> so I feel like I want to charge the Kabbalah Center like damages because all my white Shabbat outfits I can no longer use. Why they frown at you? Well, some people are not exactly major fans of the Kabbalah Center. So I'm saying some people frown and some people smile. The ones who are the fans of the Kabbalah Center say, oh, you're one of us. I'm like, not so much. And the ones who say, oh, frown at me because you're one of them. It's like, not so much. <laughs> so I just want to walk with a sign. Actually, if I wear it, like, it's not what you think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes white is just white. Sometimes Shabbos is Shabbos. White is white. So... Um, and then you can see I wrote Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov. I was left the world in 1760. And Hamagin Mimezrich, the great preacher of Mezrich, who is his disciple and successor, and he left the world in 1772. And as I said, um, though the compilation of the book is called Tzavat Arivash, the way um, we have learned to um, learn it and attribute it is that these were teachings that were compilated together in the Beit Midrash, in the study hall of the Magad of Mezrich. Um, so definitely the spirit of the Baal Shem Tov is, is present. And the truth of the matter is, if you go into Sefer Baal Shem Tov, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, so many of the teachings that you'll find in the Sefer Atarivash, you can find quoted in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. So that's why I like when I quote this book, I'll always bring both. In the same way, when I'll quote a Zohar, right, I will write Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, 2nd century, Rabbi Moshe de Leon, 13th century. Da, so I'm in the first source. Da, ki kol teva You should know that every, now we know teva, word, is a complete stature. Okay, every word has an entity of its own, has a reality of its own, has a body. We talk about a body of information, a body of knowledge. Every word is a body. Now, kumash is also alluding to a book, one of our early mystical books called Koma, Shi'ul Koma, The Stature. And that is a book that tries to, in some way, if you can imagine, if you can imagine, some kind of form and shape. And we have to be careful here about the anthropomorphic elements of what I'm saying now, right? But if we could imagine a form and shape of, of the divine, what size would that be? Shi'ul Koma, what would be the, the measurement of that stature? So if we're saying that human beings were created in God's image, what would that head look like? What would those arms and legs and limbs look like? So we need to know that every word as well has a komash lema. So maybe if we, you, you, you don't, we don't articulate a specific word right, well, then that's you know, a person who's like, you know, limb or like you're a little bit, you know, fluid or, you know, God forbid they're missing an arm or a leg or a... Every word is this complete stature. And we need to insert all of our vitality, 
our strength, our being, our essence, into, into it. Ki im lav, if not, it will be like someone who is missing a limb. Now, you can function without that limb, but there's still a totality which is somewhat challenged. It is a great act of God's loving compassion, loving kindness, that we are actually alive after tefillah. Why? That according to nature, we should have actually died. Why? Because we have exerted all of our strength into tefillah. I remember actually the day that I was writing a paper um, for my graduate work, and it was on actually prayer. It was, I wanted to create a comparison between teachings of the Desert Fathers, who were the first um, monks in the desert of Egypt between the 3rd and the 6th century, and Hasidic, and Hasidic tales about tefillah. And I remember working on one of the Desert Fathers, and all of a sudden these few words came out of my mouth, and you know how sometimes you hear yourself say something and all you want is to be able to take it back. Because <laughs> once it's out of your mouth, it has a life of its own. And I heard myself saying, prayer is death. Why? Because I understood what the Baal Shem Tov was actually saying, even though I was reading A Desert Father. Because when we put all of our vitality into the word, our spirit. It's like, it's like after you exhale, there's no spirit left. We need to inhale. Now, the union is about cleaving with God, becoming one with God. That's why a man will leave his... A man will leave their parents and will cleave to their wife. So dvekut is, a, is, is union. It's cleaving and union. And what we're aspiring to is becoming one with God. That's the dvekut. Now, if you take a step back for a moment, and the truth of the matter is dvekut, union with God, has always been on the chart of the Jewish mystical world. The uniqueness of the Hasidic teachings is that they moved it from the top of the ladder to the beginning of the ladder. Meaning to say, it used to be, it used to be, before the, before the Hasidic Rebbe's um, came into the world to bring this to us, right? one of the gifts that they gave us was, it used to be that Vekut union with God was the process that you aspired to your whole life. That maybe you could get there, maybe there would be a moment. And what the Baal Shem Tov is telling us, actually, you know what? It's, oper- it's open to each and every one of us, right? If our kavana, if our intention, and I like to think about kavana, when we talk about a musical instrument, we talk about tuning it, lechaven. So it's about attunement. If we attune ourselves, if we align ourselves, right, then we can come to the vikut. And for the Baal Shem Tov, that is a possibility for each and every one of us. And the truth of the matter is, it's not after you've done hundreds of years of mystical practices, rolled over in the snow, um, fasted for 40 days. 
No, actually, you know what it is? It's, actually, it's about taking a moment and closing your eyes and saying, one with God. Putting yourself in that presence. That was the revolution. That you didn't need to be 40 to learn Kabbalah and then another 20 years of learning Kabbalah and then rolling over in the grave, in the grave, in the, in the, in the, in the snow, and then, and then, and then, and then you get there. Right? But it's actually where each and every one of us can begin. Right? So, um, therefore, inserting yourself into tefillah, putting that breath, it's like breathing into the word. And then you're left without. So if you really breathe in, right, then it's a miracle that, <laughs> that you can actually endure this. Um, one of the images that's kind of floating in my mind, pun intended, is to think about a balloon. Right? Now, based on how much breath you insert into that balloon, that will give you the form and the shape of the balloon. The words have this reality to them. They're like vessels. They're like balloons. And we get to breathe our breath, our life, our life force into them. So therefore, based on what it is that we put into it, that's the truth. The Baal Shem will say that's also partially what we will reap from it. Um, and he says, if we didn't get the message enough in the first paragraph, you should actually, Yechshav, second paragraph, one should actually contemplate before they start, sit down to daven. That the person is willing to die because they will align themselves to such a degree. There's a wonderful story. I took a, a class with, uh, um, with Professor Beni Ishalom and Rev Cook when I was in kindergarten at Hebrew U. Um, and there's a wonderful story about Rav Kook and Rav Chalat, a story that I've been carrying with me for over 20 years. And the story is that they would go on vacation every summer and to Kirat Ya'arim, which is right outside of Yerushalayim. Now by car it's 20 minutes, then it was a bit longer. Then it was going on vacation. <laughs> and one morning Rav Chalat sees that Rav Kook gets up in the morning and instead of immediately davening, he goes out and has a very animated conversation with the gardener. And then he comes back and davens. So Rav Chalap is trying to figure out like, what's going on. Now he doesn't want to like, question him. God forbid, right? So I say to myself, it's one thing that you lose a day of peace of mind, but sleep? That doesn't work. So by the time night comes, Rav Chalap realizes he has to ask Rav Kook what happened that day. So um, Rav Kook said to him the following. He said, I want you to know that when I woke up this morning, I knew that if I davened, I'd come to Klot HaNefesh. My soul would leave my body. I knew that I would say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. And when I said that word Echad, my soul would leave my body. So I went outside, and I had this conversation with the gardener, and literally when I felt grounded in the world, I came in and I davened. Now for years, I loved that story. It seemed to me like, what an amazing moment. You wake up in the morning and you have that clarity that your soul will leave your body if you daven. That went on for many years, until about 10 years ago. Um, I'm walking from my home in Yerushalayim to Yakav, and Rabbi Miki Rosen, a blessed memory, um, and I were supposed to uh, have chavruta that morning. And the walk from my house to Yakav is about a five-minute, seven-minute walk, and as I'm walking, I'm thinking about the story, and all of a sudden I say to myself, I don't like the story at all. 
I thought to myself, if I woke up one morning and I knew I could say and my soul would leave my body, would I not do it? My whole life I'm trying to, I'm aspiring to be able to daven in that way. I'm aspiring to sit in God's dwelling for a moment. Like, I'm aspiring for that moment. And if I had that clarity, would I hold back? So I get to the sukkah, and Rabbi Rosen's already there, and I say, um, I sit down, I say, Mickey, I have a problem with Rav Cook. And he says, I want to learn for a while. And it's kind of a classic, Mommy, I want to drink of water. I'll be there. And I, ten minutes later, I say, Mickey, I still have a problem with Rav Cook. And he says, want to learn for a while. And then a few minutes later, I say, Mickey, I still have a problem with Rav Cook. Like, Mommy, I still want to drink of water. <laughs> And then finally says, okay, what's the problem? So I tell him the story. And I say, if I woke up one morning and said, if I knew that I would achieve that aspiration. So he said to me, um, he said, you know, there are two ways of giving presents. He said, one is you give a present. You think, you think about what you, wanna, what you would want to receive. And that's the present you give. And the second is you ask yourself, what would the other person want to receive? And even if it seems insignificant in your eyes, but you know that to them it would be meaningful, that's what you do. That's what you give them. So he said, so you think that giving your soul back to God is the gift that you want to give God. But what Rav Kook understood was that God, that's not the present that God wants. Because Rav Kook understood that God wants us to serve him in this world. So only when he could ground himself in a way that he could daven, in a way that he would stay in this world, did he actually daven. Yes. So we're looking for gravitation points in this world to hold someone here. In the same way that the image that I often think about is when the Kohen Gadol and the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, there would be a string that was tied to him. God forbid if he left the world, right, to be able to pull him out. But I think what, we're, what the paradigm says is that sometimes when you enter into these liminal spaces, that you need to also have a way to make your way out. And sometimes... It's about actually letting someone know that you're going to do this or letting someone know that you're going there or letting someone know what exactly you're doing. So, but the truth is that I think that what's powerful here is that uh, to know that this is actually what's being asked of us, right? That what's being asked of us is to look at prayer, to look at tefillah as a living organism. And it's an organism that we breathe our life into and we give it life. You know, there's a wonderful phrase that I learned. Um, I, took a, uh, I, I took a course, on, a course years ago on um, um, moral education with uh, Professor Barry Chazan. And I think it was Whitworth who has this phrase called dead facts. Right? And what that is is information that you don't know what to do with. It kind of circulates around in your mind but actually doesn't have any weight to it, any life to it. And it's our, our intellectual process that actually gives it meaning, gives it significance. And that's what we do in the process of learning continuously. Right? There's a reason why to know, I like to say when, that when the Pasuk says Adam knew Eve, right, we know that is about intimacy. That's how we understand that word to know. 
It's not that he asked her what her favorite book was or, you know, what flowers or he should send her on the weekend. Right? So there's a way that we become intimate with knowledge. We become intimate with words. We give them life. And for the Baal Shem Tov, he says that you should know that, again, the last line of the second paragraph, Chesed Gadol Shashem Yitbarach Noten Lo Koach. It's great. It's God's actually act of loving kindness. That he gives us the strength, the ability, the vitality. That we can complete the prayer and we're alive. So what is this? Where are we aspiring to? Right? It would be that. Now, God willing, we'll have a moment of it. God willing, we'll have one word of it. You know, there's a wonderful um, exchange between Reb Avram of Kolisk and um, the Avritzer Rebbe. One was in Tzfat and one was in um, Tveria. Um, and they're part of the Hasidic Aliyah that made their way to Eretz Yisrael in 1777. I'd like to rewrite history and say that actually the Aliyah Rishonah, the first Aliyah, wasn't in 1881. <laughs> it was in 1777. Um, and one writes to the other, you know, my dream is to be able to utter one sentence of, of the prayer with kavanah, with alignment. And the other one answers to him, I'm so jealous of you because my aspiration is to be able to, in my lifetime, utter one word. This is the offering that's being offered to us. Is about, I want to say stopping, pausing. I tell my students all the time, before Rosh Hashanah, and I tell them actually before Shavuot as well. I said, those are two days that we end up being zombies. So take a moment, pause. I said, Yom Kippur, we're in Shul, we're diving the whole day. I said, take a moment to be present. Take a moment to stop. Take a moment to sit in God's presence, not in the presence of the Sidul. Now, I'm, you know by now, I'm telling you to say every word in the Sidul, but I'm also telling you to take a moment. And Shavuot night, the tradition that we learn all night, it's again, it's like so that we're not present. We're so, uh, so we receive Torah on a level, right, which is beyond our vessels because we're so tired, we don't even know whether we're coming or going. So I think that there's a way in which on Shavuot night, the words, in the same way the words comatose us on Yom Kippur, the words of the learning comatose us Shavuot night. So on both of those times when we are bombarded with words, I always urge people, take a moment. And whether it's Shacharit every day, whether it's Mincha, whether it's Arvit, whether it's Shabbat, whatever, where, where, whatever situation you're in, take a moment. Pick a word. Right? So the Baal Shem Tov, maybe the challenge of the Baal Shem Tov is like a whole, a whole davening to do like this? Yeah, that's a miracle. That's impossible. But one word. Take a moment. And focus on one word. Maybe, I don't know. And if it comes to, I don't know, Shabbat morning, you're in shul, and it comes to Adon Olam, and everyone's singing, and you say, what happened with my one word? Take, as everyone's chanting, Adon Olam, take that moment. Like, I'm not asking you to carve out 20 hours of your week. But 20 seconds, yeah, <laughs> of your day, maybe. Okay. And the challenge, what Rabbi Nachman is offering us here, and I'm, uh, I'm not going to read through this, but just highlight it, is I mentioned earlier this notion of entering into both entrances when praying. And that has to do with the structure of a shul. And there's like the courtyard, and then there's the room itself. Right? And we paskin, the way we determine halakha is that you have to enter into both entrances before you can start davening. Because otherwise, 
Mincha is actually a good example because if you hit the door and you're starting to say Ashrei, right, by the time you get to your place, you're already in the middle of Shemona Esrei, truth be told. And by the time you get back to your car, Aleinu is over. <laughs> so, and I'm only being a little facetious. <laughs> so, um, have to enter into both entrances. The Baal Shem Tov will say those two entrances are Ahava and Yira, love and awe. There's an emotional state that you have to enter into. So, Rabbi Nachman, I feel what he's asking of us is, is to pray that we can pray. Okay, on the left column you have Likutei Mohoran. On your right column you have Likutei Tfilot. Now, uh, putting them parallel to each other is a way of saying, Rabbi Nachman, his desire was that his teachings would be transformed into prayer. That we, we, we would be praying Likutei Mohoran. And, and the, the gift that Rabbi Natan, his student, gave us is that he, he actually took Likutei Moran and transformed it into the shape and form of tefillah, of prayer. And um, just inside cheating strategies, if you find Likutei Moran hard, complicated, which it is, it's, right? In so many ways, it's more poetry than prose. It's written like prose, but really I think Rabbi Nachman needs to be read like poetry. I think the same thing is true of Rav Kook. I think sometimes it's so hard to understand Rav Kook because you're looking at a paragraph and if you would just take the time to realign the sentences into poetry, it, it would open itself up. I want to say the same thing about Rabbi Nachman. One way, I find like, I feel like Likutei Tfilot in some ways are cheat sheet for Likutei Mohoran. <laughs> because in the transition from the teaching to the prayer, it opens itself up. So sometimes if I don't understand what he's really trying to say in Likutei Moran, I'm going to Likutei Tzilat and say, okay, what's the crux of the issue? What is really being asked here? So I think, I feel Rabbi Nachman is asking, asking us, like, you know what? The truth is we have that in our tradition. When we say before Shmonai, Hashem Hashem, open my lips, right? And my mouth shall say your praise. That was a gate. But it's become part of, and we need a gate to the gate. Okay. A prayer to be able to pray. And Rabbi Nachman honoring the fact that you know what? It's not always going to happen. Sometimes I'm just saying the words. Sometimes, at that time, ooh, that's an amira. That's a statement. Right? So, so it's not going to be... Rabbi uh, Elliot Dorf has this wonderful image of... I, can't, I can only repeat it. I'm sure some of you will completely uh, identify with it. Um, baseball. What's a good baseball? What's a good batting average? <laughs> hmm? 300. Okay, but how many, how, many, how, many, how many bats do you have to bat in order to get to that kind of average? A lot, okay? And he uses that image for davening. My, in order to have a really good da- what we call a really good davening, <laughs> you've got to daven, you've got to show up every day. In order to have a really good workout, you got to show up every day. Okay, now I know, know some people that they say to themselves, I'm going to do one of the two, Davin or gym, which one is harder? <laughs> <laughs> well, which one is more challenging? Which one is more demanding? Right? So you go to the gym every day, but you, once in a while you have a really good workout. You say, ah, that was it. You Davin every day. Once in a while you have a really good Davin. So Rabbi Naman says like, Yes, what you need to know though is, in that moment, those davenings that we say that somehow don't have 
vitality to them. They're lacking the helium, right? They can't ascend. They're kind of like floating around. But when that door opens, when you have that moment, that one word, that you and God are there, when that opens, it's like a vacuum on the other side. They all go up. They all go up. They all ascend. I want to take a few minutes to talk about the ascension for a moment. And that's on your second page. And that's the teaching of Rav Shneur Zalman. Now, the truth is, um, the one good thing about the pages not being stapled is, is you can actually hold multiple pages next to each other. So if you can hold two and four together for a moment, they're both, Rebbe, they're both uh, Balatanya, Rav Shneur Zalman of Ladi. The, one, the source on page two is taken from his Sidul, Sidul Hadmo Hazaken, the Altar Rebbe, as he's also called. Um, and it's his commentary on the Sidul. And actually, it's not word by word, it's not section by but what he does is he has gates, She'arim, he has gates to, each, to the different sections of the Sidul. It's interesting to note that actually in his Sidul, he paskins according to Kabbalah. And sometimes he will paskin in his, in his Sidul differently the way, than the way he paskined in his Shulchan Aruch. We know that the Alta Rebbe wrote Shulchan Aruch Harav. He wrote the Shulchan Aruch. And you will, it is possible to see how in the Sidul he'll paskin according to Halakha. And at times, I think Nitilat Yadayim, there's a good example of it. Um, and in, in his Shulchan Aruch he'll paskin differently. Um, now, the image that is being portrayed here is, is these words that on the one hand, on page number four from the Tanya, there is divine light that as it descends into the world, it takes form and shape. That's the opening comment. Why is Torah alluded to as water? Because water goes from a high place to a low place. In the same way, Torah comes down from a high place, which is God's will, God's wisdom, and the Torah and God are one. And if you go down again and again, like by line 15, He'll talk about, he uses this phrase, you'll see that word mamash a couple of times. Hashem, et Hashem, mamash, God literally, ve'ol Hashem, mamash, and God's life, literally. Rabbi Shneer Zaman will be working with this, I want to say, these angels ascending and descending. These are the God's light ascending and descending. God's light in the mystical world is complete formless and shapeless, utterless. And as it descends, it takes on form and shape. And the opposite direction as well. And that's the section on, on, on page 2 from the Siddur is how do our words ascend? Now, one way to help us think about this image is to think about the relationship between our intuition, our thoughts, and our words. Okay, so if you want to hold on to how to work with this paradigm of something becoming more spiritual, as it's ascending, or more concrete as it's descending, right? Think about that intuition is like that fleeting something that we somehow know, but can't really even put into words. The next step from the intuition is actually those words, those thoughts, right? And then from that thought, what actually gets crystallized into words? And the truth of the matter is the fourth stage would be from our words what gets manifested in our actions. And in every level of that descent, I want to say there's a little death. There's a little compromise. 
because we can't find the totality of the words to garment, I'm using his words, to garment that intuition. We can't find, we can't express the totality of our thought. And the truth of the matter is we can't, we can't actualize in action the totality of what we've uttered. Right? And I think one, one image to work with is, or one example is, um, huh, those three wonderful words, I love you. <laughs> right? And what that, that, that flash of love is, and what that thought I love you is, and what when I say I love you, Right? When I say to someone, I love you, God willing, if they know me, they, they know so much more of what I'm saying. And the more intimate you are with the person, the more they understand the magnitude of what that I love you means. Right? And the truth of the matter is, the one rose is an indication that I will never be able to actualize my love to you. Because if I bought a million roses, it wouldn't be sufficient. So therefore, I'm only bringing one. So I think there we have a sense of how this ascent or descent um, manifests. Now this teaching from Shneur Zalman, I want to take two minutes to look at it for a second. And, um, and I have a, I have a, um, a desire. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. I don't know if it's because I haven't had the guts to do it yet, but I'd like to take this, this teaching and bring it into a high school um, and talk about sex education. Because he talks about what a hug and a kiss is. Right? And I'd love to sit with high school kids over a piece of Rishnir Zalman and say to them, just think about that ultra-Orthodox Jew that you saw walking down the street with a long black coat and a black hat. He's going to teach you what hugging and kissing is about. Because what he, the image that he brings is, is, and if you look at, um, in the English it's the second paragraph, and in the Hebrew it's about about ten lines down from the beginning, the first word on that word on that line is ilui adram hamaalot, and then there's a period, and then he says ubeul inyan gafifla v'nashikla, and what does it mean that hugging and kissing? Because the image that Reb Zalman has is he asked the question, how does the physical word ascend to God? Right? Remember, we talked about this morning. The words are the most physical of the spiritual and the most spiritual of the physical. So we, with our body, utter words. How do these words ascend? Now he has a structure taken from the Kabbalah of the four worlds and then we have, within those worlds, we have palaces and we have seven different skies and we have, and now angels dwell in each one of these levels. The image that I find helpful to think about is um, shallow water fish, right? they can only live in shallow water. And if they go down into deep water, they will yes, be squished. God forbid. And if you have a deep water fish, if they ascend, right, they'll explode. So shallow water fish going down will implode. And deep water fish that ascend, they will explode. So deep fish need to stay in deep water. Deep water fish need to stay in deep water. And shallow water fish need to stay in shallow water. Now it's not a question of better or worse. It's a question of the nature of your creation. We're not going to say that qualitatively deep water fish are qualitatively better, higher, 
more significant than shallow, because we have all these connotations with the word deep and shallow, right? They're not qualitatively different. They need, in order to exist, they need to be in their place. So in the realm of the spirit, the same thing will happen. So as the words come up, the angels that are most corporeal, right, they will take our word. They'll hug it and kiss it. Now when they kiss it, they're going to insert some of their breath, which means our physical breath will be taken out from that word. Right? Think about now, there's a balloon, but it actually has an opening on both sides. And as that angel blows into it, into the word, some of our breath comes out and takes it to the ceiling. And there, next floor, next level. And level upon level of angels that each one is a little bit more ethereal than the level before. And he says here, and I want to come back to this description for a moment, and I know it's 12 o'clock, and I'm going to take about five minutes to close up. He says, what is this kiss? In other words, the angel The angel inserts into the word its vapor of its internal spirit. And he says, Like the kiss of a physical corporeal person, which is, what is a kiss? A kiss is Yitziat Hevel Viruach Pnimi the exertion of vapor, an internal spirit, from the internal mind and heart. So the essence of your, our mind and our heart come together with our spirit. And when we kiss, it's a mingling of spirit. So that's why I want to tell these teenagers, when you can kiss like that, we'll talk about it. <laughs> Right? When you can bring, when you can muster up that intentionality of your mind and your heart, right? And share that spirit, and then what that kiss is a mingling of these spirits, then we'll talk. This is, and this for Ripshner Zalman is how this ascent happens, level upon level. It's shedding of garments, it's shedding of garments, it's shedding of garments. In the same way, the analogy that Ripshner Zalman brings, and I'm going to actually conclude with, with, with this, is this image of the king and the king's garments. The words are garments. Now we need the words because the truth of the matter is the king cannot come out into the kingdom not dressed in, their, in his royal garb. Right? So coming back to our initial tension about hi, light and vessels, about words and intention, how do we navigate those? Right? So on the one hand, Rabbi would say, the king reveals himself to the masses by virtue of being dressed in his royal garments. And therefore, we need the words. We need the garments. Right? It's very wonderful. If you go back to that Gemara about Rabbi Yochanan and, and um, Ben Zakai and Rabban Gamliel sending messengers right, um, to Rabbi Hanina to pray, so Rabbi Yochanan's wife says to him, what is this? He's greater than you? Like, why can't you? You're Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Like, all of the oral Torah is in your hands. Like, why aren't you praying for your son? Is he greater than you? And Rabbi, and Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, no. But I'm a minister, and he's a servant. Now, what's the catch? The minister of the king, in order to see the king, needs to make an appointment. And we'll always see the king robed. 
the servant walks in and out of the king's chamber. In and out, in and out. And sees the king, actually, you know, when he's sitting around and, and smoking a cigar. Right? So therefore, he has access. So I want to say there is an element where garments say something about intimacy. The words are necessary. And this is actually where I would personally challenge Rup Zalman because I think that based on, the, based on how you see a person garmented, right, that talks about the level of intimacy that you have with that person. Right? There are some people that will only see us dressed in our best clothing. Right? There are some people that we only see, for example, on Shabbat. We don't, they don't even know what our weekday clothing looks like. <laughs> right? Meet someone like that in the street or during the week, you don't even recognize them because you're used to seeing them. In the sh- I, at Yakal, that happened in the beginning, the first years, like who, the first months, like who recognized them in the, in the supermarket because all we knew was how we looked at on Shabbat. And then they're the ones that see you in your sweats. Right? Then they're the ones that see you in your, in your nightgown or in your pajamas. Right? And then there's the one who sees you in less. So there is a way actually in which the garment tells us about the level of intimacy. Now, to say that the one that sees it with no clothes, that's also, that means that our body is the one garment that's left. So manifesting in the world means that there always will be a garment. We will come back in tefillah to words. But the aspiration will be to shed the levels of the words, to shed the layers of the words, to not be locked into the words, to be able to transcend them to be able to see this as a journey that we are, we are on and that the words are on. So yes, a chassid will always say the words, but the words will be the cleave, will be the vessel to contain the light. On the one hand, it will be the reciprocal to, receive, um, to be able to receive God's light in it. On the other hand, it's the container that we put out in order to be able to receive God's light. And you can see that image as well with... Um, with Rav Soloveitchik, and I do want to um, end with Rav Soloveitchik, and that really is to understand that tefillah is an offering. Prayer is an offering. And I love the fact that he says, when God said, I'm not talking to you anymore, when prophecy ended, prayer began. When God said, I'm not talking to you anymore, what did we say? We're talking to you. We're talking to you. Right? And that venture is always open. That, I think, is what Anshay Knesset Gudal was saying to us. Right? There is not a possibility. We cannot walk a day in our lives without knowing that somehow, in some way, in some form, in some shape, there is a way for us to communicate with the master of the world. And that tefillah is that bridge that bridges between us and our creator, bridges between us and our maker.